You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Welcome back to another episode of Discover Ag brought to you in part by Case IH. I'm your host, Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I'm Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And we are bringing you the top three trending news articles in the ag and food space. Welcome back. I know it feels like we were just here. Because we were. This is a weird week for us. We're recording our podcast much closer together than we usually do because our editor is going to be traveling. So it's kind of like back-to-back podcasting. I feel like next week we're going to be out of the swing of things. I'm like a little nervous about that. I was worried about recording back-to-back, like I would maybe lose my steam. But I am just as invigorated today as I was yesterday to record. I love our articles today. I'm obsessed with them too. My on the olive oil one, the first one, I the first note I have is I'm obsessed with this article. <laughs> and I also feel like a lot has happened in the last 24 hours that I need to catch you up on anyway. So it's perfect. It almost makes me wonder. I hate to say this out loud. Maybe I shouldn't. But like, what if we podcast every day or every other day? You've already planted that seed in our conversations. You have brought this up multiple times before. Uh oh, producer Maddie saying, Oh, <laughs> I don't know what kind of. <laughs> She's like, Wait, never mind. I'm out. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I'm still in Chicago. And yesterday we went to the Field Museum and it was incredible. Like, if you haven't been, if you're traveling with kids to Chicago, even adults, like, it was a great mix. It was a fabulous museum, great mix for adults and kids. And we got to see a T-Rex, which my girls freaked out about. It was a 90% complete T-Rex. Really, really cool. So I want to be astounded by that. But in Bozeman, we have Museum of the Rockies, and it is very widely known for its dinosaur, I guess, uh, fossils, uh, that part of the museum. And so I've kind of grown up around, I don't know, seeing dead, dead dinosaurs and fossils. Uh, I kind of have to second that a little bit, like Blackwater Draw property borders my dad's dairy. So that's where like the woolly mammoth. So like all the woolly mammoth stuff, I was like, "Mm, been there, done that. But it was just overall a really great museum. So just shouting it out. If you're in Chicago or in the nearby area, go to it because I did love it. On a completely unrelated note, can I tell you what my entire Instagram like reels are right now? And probably yours too, is the entire like boy math, girl math conversation. Oh, definitely. I thought you were going to say it's the fourth wing and that was my fault. <laughs> no, but I read that. I stayed up way too late last night reading that book. Oh, so thanks where that. are you at in it? Not very far along. So just getting started, just picking up steam. But um, but yes, boy math, girl math. I do kind of love this whole trend. I think it's I find it hilarious and also extremely relatable and usually very much rooted in truth somehow. The one I watched yesterday was really funny. It was like girl math that was like, so if you sign up for the rewards, like at a shopping place, <laughs> department store, and you get $10 back, like you're saving money. <laughs> or if you return something and then you buy something new, like it, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. I am so guilty of the return one. It's like I just made money. Like it was a paycheck or something. Like it was new input into my bank account. And that's obviously not how it works. I saw a hilarious one that was like, we're all talking about girl math, but what about girl measurements? And it was a girl who took her arms and like measured the <laughs> yeah. length of a frame and then like pivoted around and saw if it like fit on the wall. And I was like, 1000%. I am a girl measure. The boy math ones are funny too. Like all they're like, I don't know, tools and different things. It's just really, really, like you said, really relatable. 
So uh, speaking of husbands and funny things, I have been spending part of my morning helping my husband on Facebook. We have decided to put a little bit more effort, I would say uh, any effort before into our Facebook before Luke was, it was just a personal account. Um, so we weren't doing any advertising for our ranch on it, but we have decided to. And Luke went from being very against, you know, wanting to put out, you know, more official scheduled kind of Facebook posting to now loving it, sitting and like consuming the comments. He's fully engulfed. He, he posted his own story the other day. He had to tell me about, he was so excited. He, you know, took out his phone, took a picture and posted it himself. And uh, it's been quite the uh, change, I would say, in his heart of Facebook. That's hysterical. Maybe Daniel influenced him when they were together last month because not that Daniel has ever actually physically posted something himself, but he does record the videos and then I post them for him. Um, but I have been, I've been getting like, he's been showing up in my feed, Lucas. So he's, oh, that's funny. whatever he's doing, it's working. Sorry uh, for that. showing you're up. Like, you're like, we're not in the market to buy any bulls. So not your target audience, Luke, but <laughs> love that post for you. I will like it and scroll on. That is exactly what I do. I like it. Scroll on. Maybe at some point I'll like share something for him. <laughs> Not that I think my audience is his target audience either, but you never know. Maybe there's some crossover. So coming up at the end of this month is Halloween. And I have to ask you, what are you guys being for Halloween? Are you like preparing I was just woke up in a panic attack this morning that I have not ordered or done anything for the boys' costumes. You know, I feel guilty about this. When Tad was younger, I just, you know, worked at the pharmacy. And I feel like my job was left at the pharmacy. I went, I worked 410, so I always had like every, you know, Monday off. It was just a very like nice, actually relaxing schedule. And I was a Pinterest mom. I mean, Tad had awesome parties. He had awesome homemade costumes. Like, I, 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 that's what I did in my spare time. I feel like I ch- channeled it into doing cool things for Tad. Poor Jackson Rue. I'm just spread thin in so many things that I feel like I am now two weeks out from Halloween. I don't know what they're going to be. Jack said he wanted to be um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, though. So I think I'm going to try and find a costume for that. Maybe make Rue the rat <laughs> and call it good <laughs> and try better next year. I don't know. I feel so guilty about it, truly. Even birthday parties. Tad's were so good and the kids' are not. I feel like that's kind of a second and third kid thing, though, too, right? Like, I, I mean, I think lots of parents relate to that, that you go, like, all out for the first kid and then it's kind of like – your excitement, I don't know, not excitement, but you just start sliding off the scale of doing things for kids. Well, I feel like I channel so much of my creativity into Instagram and the podcast and though that before I channeled all of my creativity into, you know, Tad and like those outlets. And so now I feel like I'm kind of when it comes to other creative things, I'm like creatively exhausted because I've like put it all into like this creative work and I have nothing left for just like creative, creative. Our Halloween costumes, though, have progressively got more intense. Um, We do, like, an entire family. You do. I forgot about that. What are you guys doing this year? So it's funny because, like, the first two years we did it, Daniel didn't do it. It was just me and the girls. And then one year we actually traveled. We flew on Halloween. And so me and the girls were completely dressed up on the flight. And everyone in the airport gave Daniel such a bad time that he wasn't, like, involved in the family one that since that time he has gotten dressed with us. So Guinevere's really into Harry Potter. So we're going as Harry Potter. And I'm going as a witch. Daniel's going as Dumbledore. Guinevere's Harry Potter. Annalise is Hermione. Like, we're doing all the things. No one wanted to be Hagrid. 
Uh, the girls tried to talk Daniel into it, and he said, no, he'd rather be Dumbledore. So that's what he is. No one wanted to be Hedwig the Owl. I feel like I pick – I'm one of – there are two types of girls going back to, like, girls. There are girls that do, you know, like, provocative, fun – you know, sexier Halloween costumes. I am the girl that does like the weird, goofy, <laughs> awkward Halloween costume. Like one year I was a buffalo and my friend was a hunter. <laughs> and like, I, I don't know, I always pick like if you, if I was part of your family Halloween costume, which, hey, Daniel, I'm just putting it out there. I feel like, you know, maybe like I could be part of it. Um, I feel like I would be like, I'll be Hedwig. Like I would pick like the random <laughs> thing to be a part of the costume. I mean, usually the girls, so the girls pick out what I am. And so usually they pick out something not so great. So I have been Darla <laughs> from Finding Nemo. I have been the bearded lady from uh, Greatest Showman. I have been, what else have I been? I was Maleficent last year. So I let them pick. I, oh, I've been Olaf. So yeah, normally I'm like the goofy sidekick person. <laughs> yeah. So I feel pretty excited. I get to be like Professor McGonagall and be a witch. Like feels like I maybe I'm moving up in my girl's eyes. Oh, that's so funny. All right, let's get into it for today. Starting with thanking our sponsor, Case IH. To the men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to see their stories and to even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. All right. The first headline you guys need to discover this week is olive oil prices reach record highs as Spain's harvest is halved. Extreme heat, wildfires, and drought have decimated much of the world's olive oil harvest yet again, driving prices to a record high of 9000 per metric ton. Which is the equivalent of about $4 per pound. The average bottle of olive oil in the grocery store right now costs just about $10. And we are seeing some big price increase. We last year, we saw a 12% price increase, um, 8% the year before that. And now this year, they're saying August of this year, prices were up 130% compared to a year ago. So it's escalating very quickly in the prices going up. And it's really a compounding issue. Yeah, I was going to say they are concerned that we're not seeing the end of it either. There's a soundbite that said, should this pace of depletion persist, market insiders warn that olive oil supplies could be exhausted before the arrival of fresh harvests, which is, I believe, October for a majority of the leading places, which not good news. Not good news. So as you said, Spain produces half of the world's olive oil and they are down 48%. But also, other issues are in Italy. They are also down in their olive oil producing region. And then Turkey is over there hoarding their olive oil and not allowing for exports. So thanks, Turkey. I thought that was hilarious how they were they're limiting that and reserving it. But I do think, I mean, that obviously gets into, you know, conversations about the pros and cons of being like a global global marketplace where you're exporting and importing um, and goes back to something we always talk about, which is like being, you know, food sovereign, like making sure that you can take care of your own nation when it comes to uh, feeding them. Yeah. And then Turkey is like, no, we will not run out Mm -hmm. of olive oil. We will just shut down exports. Turkey's like, you cannot sit with us. Uh, So some of the reasons they listed are drought and lack of water over the past months in Spain that were creating some of these concerns. And also there's some storms that have affected um, apple. Apulia, which is the most important olive oil production region in Italy. Um, So a lot of it is, as the title kind of alluded to, um, 
you know, climate related. And this is not obviously the first time we have talked about that. That is a theme that I feel like is threaded throughout our Discover topics is how weather is starting to affect different products, harvest, and thus like as consumers, how we're shopping it on the shelves. Yeah. And it's crazy how the extremes are. Like you said, Spain's in a drought. Italy's receiving too much rain. Italy is the world's number two producer of olive oil. So the extreme storms that they've been having are, um, obviously affecting this. But on the U.S. side, we are actually a net importer of olive oil. We do not make nearly enough to fill demand. But I thought that this was kind of cool for California olives is that it might help their market. Like it'll make them more competitive because right now they're kind of expensive compared to the world market. Yeah, I actually found the stats about U.S. olive oil consumption so fascinating. Um, We are, as you mentioned, the net importation. So when it comes to olive oil, we produce around 16,000 tons a year on average. But we consume some 390,000 tons. So we are nowhere even close to hitting, um, you know, fulfilling our own demands. Yeah, and we are expected to go even higher for demands because of people's like assumption that it olive oil is healthier for you. And then also the sustainability advantages. I thought this was really cool. Olive um, olive trees can live for hundreds of years and are really good at fixing atmospheric carbon into the soil. So they are like out there fighting climate change. One of the craziest quotes I read in this article was that olive oil is currently more valuable than crude oil. Crude oil right now is less than a tenth of the price of olive oil sitting at about $670 per metric ton. That's insane. That is crazy. But that entire train of thought, like going down there, I think you ended up down the same rabbit hole because you were sending me reels about olive oil theft, that because it's so valuable, there is a ton of like theft, counterfeit. They kind of had similar issues as we did in the United States with like the Cool Act. So like the country of origin labeling that now because of lawsuits and all this counterfeit, you have to say like where the olive oil was produced and not just which country it was bottled in. So crazy. Yeah. Olive oil has been trending about that for a little bit. I do feel like it's starting to come to the surface more now, but they are starting to recognize that people are cutting olive oil, uh, essentially with different, you know, not as, um, pure olive oil. So some of the, the seed oils you'll hear being attacked mostly. And so there's actually a real right now going pretty viral on, um, Instagram. And I would imagine TikTok as well. We'll actually put it on the discover ag page so you guys can see it, but they talk about this, about how, well, they actually talk about how the mafia is a part of it is, but the, essentially at the root of it, they're talking about how they are cutting and then still putting on the label like 100% Italian olive oil and how it's kind of a major problem. Yeah, I thought the best piece of advice was one from one of the um, olive producers, olive oil producers in California that said, we always tell our customers to look for where your olive oil is coming from and look at the harvest date as well, which I have always looked at where it's coming from, but I never thought about looking at the harvest date, but apparently that is on the bottle. So something to look out for. I actually, after reading this, I feel like we consume quite a bit of olive oil. I'm like, I am going to Costco and buying like the Costco size jug of olive oil in preparations of higher prices. <laughs> Like, I want to price lock that in, like, right now. That's where my mind went at the very beginning of this. I was like, are we going to see, like, olive oil hoarding in grocery stores? I actually order mine online. I order from a company out of California. It's female-owned, and it's called Brightland Olive Oil. uh, And I love supporting them. So uh, maybe I'll put in extra orders from them. Yeah, can you, like, share the wealth and send that company my way? Share it on Discover Ag? I would love to. Speaking of theft, they mentioned that a half a million dollars of olive oil was stolen in August from a mill in Spain. So not chump change, to say the least. Lock your doors, hide your kids. 
Hi, lock your doors, hide your olive oil. <laughs> More like burying olive oil in the backyard. <laughs> Someone like excavates years later. All right, moving on, we want to thank our sponsor, Armra. Armra is a proprietary concentration of bovine colostrum. So fun fact is we're actually in Chicago right now at our co-op meeting. And so Armra, who sources their colostrum from our co-op, gave a presentation yesterday about all of the new research they're doing and just some really cool things they're doing with Armra. Armra, as I mentioned, is a colostrum. It's in powder form. And you take it every single day in either like water or um, cold foods or beverages. I actually have been just like taking it straight every single day. When my sister watched me do it, she was like, you are a psychopath. But it's just a really quick, easy way to do it. I actually learned about doing taking it that way from the CEO when she was on the Skinny Confidential a few weeks ago. Fascinating podcast. Um, but I have been really loving the benefits of taking colostrum. I have noticed a difference in helping me. Like I felt a cold coming on and I doubled up on my colostrum for like a week. Huge difference. Felt so much better. Yeah, I think it's safe to say we're in our Armra era. We've entered our Armra era. I haven't missed a day of it since starting it. It's been really easy for me to add it to my daily grains. As you mentioned, you can take it straight, which I think is a good allude, like alludes to the size, the amount you need. It, it's not very much, which is crazy. I feel like sometimes you get the scoops of like collagen or even protein, and they're like massive scoops you have to put into your protein shakes or like try and hide them. Not Armra. It is a very small amount. I can easily put it into my daily greens. And um, I have noticed, I think, hair growth around um, specifically my face. I mean, I'm sure it's everywhere, but I feel like that's where you notice it when you're a woman. And I don't know what else it would be from. Like, I haven't really introduced anything else. And I've always been consistent with my beef liver pills and my daily greens. And so I really do think it's the Armra that's helping with hair growth. So that's one of the main reasons I'm taking it also for the immune boosting. And I think heading into like you know, cold and flu season, it'll be a real test to see how it actually stands up. So we'll keep you guys posted for sure. Uh, My hairdresser, not to like toot my horn, but my hairdresser said she noticed hair growth as well. So I actually have been traveling and been taking the travel packs with me. So really easy to whether you get it like where you scoop it or you have the travel packs. It's amazing. So go to tryarmra.com forward slash discover or use our code discover to get yourself 15% off your next order. Again, that code is discover for 15% off your next order. All right, the second article to discover this week, headline, the stars are lining up in Colorado for raw milk in 2024 with some weird politics thrown in. So to start this off, I feel like we've covered raw milk before and I've shared like my history, but just like a quick recap, like I have drank raw milk most of my life, but growing up obviously on a dairy and then ultimately in my adult years have decided to not drink raw milk and I now consume cheapest milk on the shelf. So... That's my backstory for people who don't know diving into this article. One of the reasons that we wanted to cover it again is because it is such a hot topic right now. There were actually two articles, one from Colorado, one from North Dakota about this. I feel like anytime we guest on any podcast, it is literally the first thing that I get asked about when we start talking about milk is my opinions on raw milk. And so I just feel like raw milk right now is everywhere. It is definitely trending. We're in our raw milk era as a society. I have learned more about raw milk listening to you when we guest on podcasts than (laughs) I have ever dreamed I could possibly learn about raw milk. But this article is interesting. So Colorado has the West's most restrictive raw milk regulations. They are currently a cow share jurisdiction, which means the sale of raw milk is entirely banned in the state. Um, You can eat and drink the products permitted if you own the dairy cows. And so I can see why, you know, the people within that state, obviously, you and I standing for food choice have a little bit of issues. I think it's interesting that it's being brought into 
politics. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that essentially like the Libertarian Party is really behind the raw milk, but they're using it to their advantage to get other things passed that they want with like Republicans. And so it's kind of crazy that like raw milk is what they're using as their leverage. Yeah, they said that as a nonpartisan policies, the Libertarians are offering to pull any candidates they might have in competitive districts if the GOP will support tax cuts and raw milk. That's insane. (laughs) It really is. But I think the governor has a lot to do with it as well right now. He has um, been a part of the enthusiastic bipartisan Food Freedom Caucus. Like he was a member of that. And he has been quoted as saying fully legalize the production and sale of raw milk. Like if that bill comes to him, he will sign it. So I think probably raw milk advocates right now are probably like, this is our moment. Like if we want to get this passed all the way through, we need to jump on it. So Colorado actually started a raw milk association and it's from 230 dairy farmers, which I think is interesting because hearing you speak, I do think um, it's kind of split within the dairy industry. Obviously, if you're like selling raw milk and you're part of the, the raw milk movement within the dairy industry, it's important to you and you're in support of it. But I do think there is some reservation for other parts of dairy who, you know, as you can start speaking about fall into the camp of, you know, maybe a little more awareness, like there are some things to be cautioned, like the risk behind it. So I thought it was interesting that this raw milk association, you know, had such a large number of dairy farmers. Yeah, it's definitely split, I would say, within the dairy community of how people feel about it. Um, I have, I feel like, ever changing even opinions about it myself. I do stand for food choice, but it is hard when you read about some of the concerns, the outbreaks, like I think it's on both sides. I think people that are against raw milk sometimes overplay how much you get sick, although it is like a significant amount and there are some really risky side effects of drinking raw milk if you get sick, especially for children under the age of five and elderly or like pregnant women. And one of the things when I was drinking raw milk when I was pregnant that my doctor said that made a lot of sense is if you show up to a hospital and you're really sick, they no longer look at like raw milk as being a cause. And so you could get misdiagnosed or go on, you know, they wouldn't be able to diagnose you with what you have because they don't look for those signs anymore. Like that's not like on their checklist anymore of like, oh, it could be salmonella from raw milk. While I want people to be able to choose the product they want, there is risk associated with this and they are serious risks. So I'm actually glad you brought up about how opinions can change and almost that there is enough conflicting data that it makes you unsure about your stance sometimes. I spent time on two very different websites. I would say maybe the polar end of the spectrum here. I spent time on the FDA website. They have a very extensive uh, page, I guess, dedicated to the myths of raw milk and then, you know, debunking them essentially with scientific data. I thought it was really interesting. You know, you talk a lot about how the raw milk community will bring, you know, science into it and state that it's been shown or proven, you know, that, that that it, you know, raw milk exhibits X, Y, and Z effects. And that's why they're taking it. And they issued a lot of studies. They even issued one specifically that said that the Parsifal has been misused by the raw milk advocates ever since it was published. I mean, they go on to basically bullet point about how like raw milk is not more effective in preventing osteosis. Raw milk is not, you know, uh, uh, carry like microbiotics that, uh, you know, the raw milk community can claims. So it's, it's very extensive. You can visit it. We, we can link it in the show notes if you guys want. And then on the opposite on the spender, you get to the, you know, a, there's a website for raw milk finder and it quotes that it is the perfect food and extremely important for developing brains and nervous system in children and how you need raw milk. I mean, it's like literally 
states the exact, exact opposite of what the FDA states. And so I can see why consumers are so conflicted sometimes when it comes to food purchasing of like, am I supposed to buy this? Is this the best? Or do I just need grocery store milk? Yeah, I think both sides are sometimes at fault for overstating different things. On the non-raw milk side, I think some of the risks are overstated. Like out of the nine plus million consumers of raw milk, there's been approximately 112 became sick each year, which is less than like 0.001% chance of getting sick. But if you get sick, it's like serious hospitalizations. Like there was a ton of lists of like outbreaks in Oregon, outbreaks in California. And of course, a lot of it was like children or elderly ending up in the hospital. And then on the flip side, the pro raw milk advocates, as you said, I think overstate the benefits of raw milk and that it cures asthma, that it, if you're allergic to milk, like pasteurized milk, you won't be allergic to raw milk. They, they basically put a lot of blanket statements out there that are don't have scientific data and are not backed by, you know, research. So I feel like both of them are kind of at fault. I don't know that there's a right or a wrong answer here. And the part that stinks is that if you are, you know, following I don't want to say victim, but if you are, you know, take consuming the information that, you know, let's say the raw milk site is putting out. And so you're starting to source it. It's not cheap. I have it listed right here from the, what was it? North Dakota uh, dairy farmer that was interviewed in this about raw milk. He is selling it for $25 a gallon, which is the delivery cost. But that's a lot of money. I mean, whoa, that's insane. Insane. Talk about, you know, the mafia and the olive oil. <laughs> Let's talk about the mafia and the raw milk. $25 a gallon for milk is not in my budget, <laughs> personally. And that, I think, is hard, too, because I've seen it. I've done a reel about raw milk in California that was going for $19 a gallon, so not even delivered to your doorstep. And people... There was lots of comments on that reel in both directions, support and against, of raw milk. But... I mean, I just keep go back to I don't fall in the camp of thinking that raw milk has like super power food, whatever. I think all milk is really healthy for you. For me, the risks don't outweigh the benefits. And so that's why for my family, we choose to do pasteurized homogenized milk. And I do think that that's even worth noting. I think a lot of times when people think like, oh, raw milk tastes so much better or it tastes different, you have to take into the fact that were you drinking 2% or skimmed before and this is going to be whole fat milk, like it's going to be non-homogenized milk, which also may affect taste. So you mentioned pasteurization. You're going to laugh at me. But I did not realize how long we have been pasteurizing. We have been pasteurizing since 1862. That's crazy. Yes, we have been pasteurizing milk for a really long time. And it has to do with the fact that the reason we like started doing it is obviously for safety, but people were moving into cities and we were bringing milk in from further distances. And so pasteurizing allows the milk to, you know, be safer when transported, obviously, for longer distances, longer amount of time. I mean, nowadays with ultra pasteurized milk, you can have milk that is like shelf stable for up to like a year. I mean, pasteurization is a really, really cool process that has helped food safety and and the shelf life of our milk. I was fascinated reading about the pasteurization and the development of it. And as you alluded to earlier, the article I was reading about it talked about how there's a difference between pasteurization and sterilization because one of the big things that, you know, consumers on the raw milk side will say is that that pasteurization process is going to be killing some of the good nutritional value with it. And it talked about that difference and how pasteurization, you know, does not affect the taste or nutritional value, um, whereas sterilization would. 
Yeah, so going back to the articles, um, when you read through them, I mean, just the conflicting messaging even within them is crazy. You know, you have the farmer who's selling the milk in North Dakota saying like, uh, raw milk is the number one healing food to relieve asthma, allergies, eczema. Like, (laughs) it's like, oh, wow, it just cures everything. And then on the flip side, you have the Department of Health saying, I can't stress enough that there is a risk in consuming raw milk. Not every person is going to become ill from consuming raw milk, but that one time can be potentially life-changing event. And I actually liked the quote from the Department of Health that it was like, there's a risk. Not everyone's going to get sick, but if you do, it can be really bad. And I think it goes back to my very beginning statements of exactly kind of how I feel. Um, And so while I do stand for food choice, it is you are doing so while accepting those risks. I think the last thing I'll add, which I feel like plays a role in kind of the debate over this and why it is becoming such a trending topic and talked about topic, is that it is very state to state. And so I do think when you're in a state where like Colorado, let's say it just has very rigorous laws around it and all your neighboring states like Wyoming, Oregon, Montana, Nebraska, Kansas, and North Dakota just passed it. You're kind of frustrated where you're like, all these other states are allowing it. Like, why can't we have it? And so you feel like there's this restriction of your food choice as a consumer. And so I think that for sure plays a role when, you know, people are like, why do they get to do it? But we don't get to. I honestly was kind of surprised that Colorado hasn't made it legal yet, just based on like Colorado's history of legalizing things before the rest of the country. I think ultimately it will end up being legal in all states. Just with the movement that's going on right now, it wouldn't surprise me. And maybe that'll be, I don't know. I'm curious to see how that plays out because will we see um, a big increase of people being sick from raw milk? Uh, Whenever it passed in Oregon, the lawmakers who helped pass it had a big party and they consumed raw milk and they had a food outbreak. They got sick. So, and it made headlines. Um, So we'll be kind of tracking this and seeing if there's anything like that coming up in the news in the future. And now we have one more new sponsor for today. It is Wag Bars. It is a 100% American Wagyu beef snack. It is beef with a purpose. And we're actually going to do a little taste test for you guys. I personally love the Wag Bars because they help me get my protein goals for the day. I am trying to get 30 grams of protein per meal and 10 grams per snack. And these are, these are it. We have both actually worked with Wag Bar before historically. So this is our second time working with them. So we have had them. Our family has consumed them, eaten them. I was a fan of them the first time around. We worked with them, used them, consumed them. I will say the reason I never kept up with them is because I'm just too lazy to order online. I love the taste. I love the product. I love the the brand, their mission, and everything like that. It just came down to me being a lazy shopper, and that's why it they didn't like remain on the shelves in my household. But I'm very happy to have them back in the shelves of my household. Uh, we both have said like with a purpose, a mission. I do want to mention that they do donate to feeding homeless in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area, which is near their like main ranch where they source their beef from. So I think that's really cool. I feel like we try to find uh, brands that are doing really cool things to give back and Wagbar is definitely doing that. So which two are you trying? Which two am I trying? Well, I want to do all four. So there you guys, the the flavors are original teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy. And here's my thing. Tara already alluded to the fact that we have different palettes. Miss New Mexico down there, Miss Green Chili, Miss USA Green Chili down there can tolerate (laughs) way more heat than I can. And so that is a barrier for me when I'm ordering things because I, like when I'm shopping, also when I'm ordering at the restaurant. But I mean when I'm shopping because I'm like, can I handle this? Is this, what's the rating of this spice? Is it one where it's okay for me? Or is it 10 where it's too much for me? And so then I can never buy the spice products because I'm just afraid 
I'll get something that's too spicy. So I think I should test the spicy ones and then I can let people know who also have a, maybe a more mild palate like mine. You'll want to avoid this. You'll want to eat this. It's okay. And then I think we should rank one through four. Okay. So what are we doing first? Original? Yes. I've also heard these are really good heated up. I haven't done that, but my mom does that and she swears by it. It's worth noting it's like softer beef jerky. It's not like hard beef jerky. Original though tastes very much like, yeah, it's very thick. It's like a steak. I feel like original tastes authentically beef jerky. Like it's what I think my mouth thinks beef jerky is going to taste like. And I have to say, I like that it's softer. Um, There's 14 grams of protein, three grams of total carbs and 90 calories, you guys. And I do feel like I would eat one of these. I used to eat one of these and it would be, I'd eat it with like an apple and a string cheese or something. And it would be like almost my meal. Like it is that hearty. Okay. What's next? Teriyaki? Yeah. I'm excited about the teriyaki. I don't know if I've ever tasted the teriyaki. Teriyaki is not my favorite flavor. So I'll be interested to see if I... It's not overly teriyaki-ish. Actually, as a person who likes teriyaki, I wish it was a little more teriyaki, but it's good. How do you feel about it? A person who doesn't like teriyaki, I would just go for the original over teriyaki. Mm-hmm, okay. But you're right. I don't think it's overpowering. I do not think it's overpowering it's not. at all. Mm-mm. All right. Hot and spicy. Coming in next. So I don't think it's that hot and spicy. Do you? I mean, there's definitely a kick. There's definitely a flavor based off of the original. It's a... L- A little bit of a kick from the original. It tastes like original with a little more punch, but it is not what I would describe as like overly hot. It's good. It's a good flavor. It has a little afterburn. What do you rank it on as a scale of like one to 10 for your spice level? Like a two. I was going to say, I rank it as like a four. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty low for me. I'm not like, oh my gosh, like I could take a drink of water, but I'm not like dying. I could eat a whole bar of this and be fine. I bet by the end of the bar, I would be like, woo, that had some kick to it. <laughs> Whereas one bite, I'm like, okay, I'm good. Woo. <laughs> woo. All right, peppered. Okay, I did have another bite. And it's, maybe it's like a five for me. It's like a halfway of what? I'm, I was surprised when you said four. Yeah, it's probably a five for me. And by the time I get down to the bar, it's going to be like a seven or an eight. Like my mouth is going to be pretty hot. If you want a little more flavor, I think the pepper is a good in between the original and the hot and spicy. It's more of that pepper flavor where the hot and spicy is more like jalapeno flavor. I was going to say the pepper actually I think is more spicier for me. Like I don't know if I'll be able to finish this pepper bar. Oh, I feel like it's just a more common spice though. Like you can tell it's pepper. For sure. Okay. I rank the hot and spicy as number one. I rank the original as number two. I rank the peppered as number three. And I rank the teriyaki as number four. So we're just flip-flop for the first two. I would order the original first, then the hot and spicy, then the peppered, then the teriyaki. And I will end that with probably my one of my favorites is, we didn't try it, but the jalapeno cranberry bites. I had them the other day and I had to stop myself from not just eating the entire bag by myself I because I wanted Dan to try them. I loved those. Okay, before you get into our third article, I know you want to, but don't forget when you go to mywagbar.com, use the code DISCOVER to save you some money. So again, that is mywagbar.com, use code DISCOVER. Um, And take us, if you guys get them and are consuming them, you know we love food tags, so give us a tag. All right, the third and final article to discover this week, title Oregon Animal Rights Ballot Initiative IP3 is a Threat. State campaign finance records show that an extreme animal rights ballot initiative has gained more than $110,000 in donations this year to pay for signature collectors to get onto the November 2024 Oregon ballot. The initiative has to be read to be believed. The reason I wanted to cover this one is I think sometimes within 
ag or just in general, we see something like this and we're like, there's no way something like that would pass. And when you start diving into this ballot, we are seeing that there's a real threat that this could actually make it through. And that is kind of crazy because it affects not just agriculture, not just animal agriculture. It affects hunting, fishing. It even affects how veterinarians are able to practice, you know, on animals. It affects pet ownership. It really is kind of crazy. And it reminds me a little bit of like what passed in California, like the one about pork and chicken is depending on how it's written on a ballot, if it's basically written as like, do you want to end animal cruelty? People are going to say, Yes, obviously, without knowing all of the backstory of what is actually going to go into this measure. Yeah, so you said a lot there, and I want to dive, kind of dissect all of those different trains of thoughts and pieces and information about the ballot. But before we do that, you started by saying that you chose, you wanted to chose this because from the ag side, we think, oh, let's spread awareness around this because it's unbelievable, right? Like, this is not going to happen. But I think it's important to share it also from the consumer side because I think they I think we need to be more aware walking into the ballots about things we're voting on and the ripple effects. And so lots of people could look at an article like this and think, "Oh, it only affects agriculture." As you alluded to, no, it affects everyone and I I think there needs to be a better job done on each every one of us when we walk into the ballots to have more research done about what we are actually voting on. I completely agree with you. So to kind of get into some of this, I went on the sites that were for it and against it so I could kind of see both sides. But one of the things I could not find is which animal activist group was actually behind this. I Googled and Googled and found nothing. Were you able to find anything like that? Mm-mm. But I didn't, I didn't actively look for who was behind it, so... But obviously, there was extreme viewpoints on both sides. I actually took some screenshots of some of the, like, social media campaigns that were for it. And so it has, like, fish feel, and then there's, like, a dead fish. There's a little boy crying for his 4-H animal that's obviously been sold at the sale, which we had kind of covered something similar to that before. Uh, And so it was definitely – they were pulling – at the heartstrings, I feel like, and not actually telling you what this ballot was going to be about. It was more definitely emotionally driven than laying out exactly how this affects so many different things. Okay. So getting into that, like what it actually affects. IP3 is actually a revamp. They tried to pass this a while ago and it failed. And so they're coming back with it again and kind of rechange some things. So what remained the same is that essentially IP3 seeks to change the animal abuse statutes to criminalize hunting, fishing, trapping, killing animals for food, education and research with animals, wildlife management practices, and even trapping mice and vermin. It would also classify breeding animals to include domestic pets, livestock, and equine as sexual assault. And so that is one of the newly added things is that it would be a sexual assault crime if you do any part in animal breeding. The fact that if you kill a mouse or a rodent in your house would be illegal, (laughs) like kind of sums up how crazy this really is. There was a website that I thought worded it really well. And they said, this is an attack on self-reliant lifestyle. It would create a no-kill sanctuary state forcing Oregon to a vegan diet or to have their meat and dairy products shipped in from other states, making Oregon reliant on the National Food Network for our food resources and less sustainable as a state. Uh, which would ultimately drive up food costs to Oregon and increase food insecurity for many communities. That is what this issue is, not what will be put on the ballot, as you said, which is, do you not want animals to be abused? Of course we don't want animals to be abused. 
Now, if you have to vote on, do you want to be a, you know, do we have to import all of our meat animals? Do you want to, you know, pay extra? Like, do you want to be reliant on every other state? That would get the no votes. And so it's all about how it's put in the ballot. And I feel like that's so unfair. Yeah, one of the big words that's being removed too is intentional. And so therefore it like criminalizes unintentional harm. So if you were to by accident hit a skunk on the road when you were driving, technically that could be unintentional harm or neglect to an animal and would be illegal. It's really extreme. But back to like my first point, it's not completely like off the table of being like that it could potentially pass. No, they are collecting about 10,000 signatures per month, and they're still hiring more signature collectors. If they continue at this pace or even double it, they'll have enough of valid signatures by the July date to get on the ballot. So it is plausible. You mentioned that they're hiring more people to help them with this. They have been receiving donations from across the country. Like this is not just about Oregon. This is animal rights, you know, activist groups are putting a lot of money from across the country to try to get this passed in Oregon so that they can start like they've got to start somewhere, right? With something like this getting passed. And so they're really like pulling all of their resources to make to give their best effort in order to get this to pass. Yeah. And I actually didn't know enough about politics to know that that was legal, but I absolutely do not believe that should be legal. I don't think you should be able to fund an initiative that happens in one state by outlying states. Like if this wants to be passed in Oregon and it will affect Oregon people, it should come from Oregon's money. Because one of the things was saying, if this does get passed, one of the downfalls is obviously that it's passed and you'll have to be voting on it. But then everyone in the state of Oregon is now going to have to spend their own hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars to actively campaign against it. And I... Just don't think outside money should be brought into it. It is crazy that that is allowed, but I mean, it's everywhere. I remember in New Mexico a few years ago, we had something that was up. Somebody was up for reelection and it was a big, like they thought it could be like a swing district. And so money came from all over the country in order to support different candidates. It was like one of the most expensive, you know, campaigns in history because of that exact thing. Yeah. And on the thread of money, um, I feel like a lot of people would look at this bill and just think it affects again, kind of like the animals themselves, but like there's a huge economic component to this. So it wouldn't just, you know, put like fishermen, farmers and ranchers out of business and like affect essentially the ag industries, which is what you would think of when you see the surface level of the bill, but it's going to impact like farm suppliers, restaurants, transportation companies, distributors, retailers, like everyone to the grocery stores, um, outdoor recreation economy would probably be killed. Like retailers guide outfitters, it would have like a massive economic impact on the state of Oregon. I actually just don't get how the state would continue to thrive. Yeah, on the pro, like people that are for passing this, they have an entire section on their website about um, understanding your concern about meeting their needs for food and how this will actually make there be more food in the state and like it was very like felt very propaganda and they were like, we have farmers who are fruit and nut and vegetable farmers. And like, we can live on those foods. And it didn't get into at all of what, you know, what it's going to cost for us to then us, I mean, Oregon to import 
meat and dairy and all of these things and how it'll affect like outdoor living lifestyle, like people that want to like hunt and fish. I mean, it's just so extensive. I do feel like one of maybe the good things about how extensive it is, is it is going to band together, I would assume, all things from pet ownership to veterinarians to animal agriculture to hunting and fishing. I mean, the organizations that are obviously against it, I'm hoping are banding together to proactively try to fight this. And I saw them intentionally using things like local food sourcing, which I feel like will get a lot of people who that's important. Like I do feel like they are intentionally trying to hit so many different uh, avenues and pain points and things that are important to different organizations so that everyone can band together. I thought it was extremely interesting. I went to, there's a website called noip3.com and the pop-up image when you go there is uh, the little box that says, imagine no charcuterie boards. And then it like has you put in your information. And at first I kind of chuckled. I was like, oh, you know, that that's funny. And then I was like, no, that's so smart. They're getting the person that is the furthest removed from this bill to understand how it could affect them. Like no charcuterie board is how far we are going with what this bill would mean for you. Yeah, this was actually sent in by discos and our DMs by a few farmers and non-farmers who were concerned about it and wanted us to cover it. Um, with that being said, since Natalie and I are both not in Oregon, it is one of those articles that we would love for you guys to weigh in on. Like, send us your thoughts. Um, if you're from Oregon, what are you seeing? Are you seeing billboards for it, against it, radio ads? Like, I'm very curious what it looks like on the ground in Oregon. So please DM us over on Instagram and uh, let us know what you are seeing and what you think. All right. Well, that kind of wraps us up for today. Thank you for discovering with us and we will see you guys next week. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.